In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Afam Onyema is our guest this week on Money Tales. When Afam was graduating from Stanford Law School, he decided to pass on the lucrative job offers he received to help co-found the Co Foundation. Up until that point, Afam thought a person had to first be wealthy to create a foundation, but he decided to make the leap and had to figure out how to raise money for Co and also figure what his personal plan was for money. He had expenses to cover, including law school debt. As Afam describes it, he was operating without a net. Once you hear Afam's story, there's no surprise that he's as successful doing good in the world as he's been. Jinko's mission is to save and transform lives in Nigeria. Jinko leads complex surgical missions to the country. It also runs innovative programs to support the health, mental health, and education of girls and women in Nigeria. In 2022, Afam was named one of the top 10 most influential Africans in the diaspora. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Afam hits on in this conversation. First, how Afam didn't really have money conversations until he went to college at Harvard. Once there, the pressures of the conversations his peers were having about career financial considerations motivated him to become financially literate. Second, how Afam thinks living a life when you're both inspired and terrified by your work is the place to be. And third, how asking for donations is really about relationships. It's important to make people feel comfortable and connect them to the purpose of what the money is for. If you like this episode, please be sure to share it with a friend and subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, on to our conversation with Afam Onyema. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. Hi, Cami. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Sandy, tell me, have you been having any of your own money conversations lately? I've been having money conversations that I want to share because of the guests that we're speaking to today on behalf of a nonprofit organization that I'm on the board of. We're coming up to the end of the organization's fiscal year, and it's time to do a last effort to bring dollars in to meet our budget goals. I and all the other board members have had the opportunity to reach out to our donors and those who have not contributed yet and have conversations. And that's been a lot of fun for me. So you don't find it uncomfortable to reach out to the donors? I don't because we're reaching out to folks who've contributed in the past. And there's certainly a connection 
hopefully still have with the organization. So it's a great opportunity to check in, to talk about what the organization is up to and to find out whether that important work still aligns with where their focus is and their objectives for the philanthropic giving that they're doing. It's a lot of fun. That's great. I'm not surprised you don't get nervous, but I know some do. So I look forward to speaking with our guest a little bit more about that. Let's introduce that guest. Welcome, Afam Onyema, to the Money Tales podcast. Thank you both so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you start us off introducing yourself and providing a couple pivotal moments that really impacted who you are and what you're doing today? Sure, happy to do so. So I am co-founder and CEO of the Jinko Foundation, and I'm a first-generation American. My parents are from Nigeria, born and raised, and my father, when he was there, was at a British boarding school and was inspired by a British missionary doctor back in the 40s to get into medicine. She saw something in him and for some reason took him under her wing, and he learned really frontier medicine, delivering babies, fighting malaria, not only fell in love with medicine through that experience, but fell in love with self-sacrificial medicine. The idea that this doctor came over from a very comfortable life in England to help this community halfway around the world in the 40s and 50s. He knew he eventually was going to leave Nigeria. And he told his father, my grandfather and this doctor, I'm going to leave. I'm going to pursue my medical career in the US or the UK, but I will come back. I promise I'll come back and help my community. They met my mom, who's a nurse, and they came over to Chicago in the mid-70s. And their plan was to stay no more than four or five years, learn medicine, raise some money, and then come back and make this dream and promise real. But I'm the second of four kids. And they realized that amazing opportunities here in the US. And it'd be fair to pull us from the US to Nigeria. And unfortunately, the story hasn't changed much, is going through ethnic violence and corruption and a lot of challenges and troubles. And I decided, no, it wouldn't be fair to do that. We stayed in the States. We stayed in the Chicago area. But my dad always told us about this dream. A pivotal moment for me, I ended up going to Harvard for undergrad, and so many of my classmates were focused on financial success or political power or cultural relevancy. And those are all great. And I have classmates and schoolmates doing amazing things in those areas. But I thought more about service. How could I take this opportunity coming out of the school to be of service? And it was right around the time the AIDS epidemic was raging in the early 2000s. So I talked to my dad more about his dream, never to get into a full time, but just to learn more about how I could help, help him find donors, help him find partners. And then I went to Stanford for law school and then got really involved in helping him. We formed a foundation. One especially pivotal moment during that experience was I was in law school, so I couldn't go myself, but we put together a medical mission. I helped organize it and fundraise for it. And the team did hip and knee replacements, one of the first hip and knee replacement medical missions of that size and complexity to be done in Nigeria. And the doctors came back and I heard these stories and saw these pictures of patients whose lives were changed forever. And I thought, gosh, imagine being part of a mission or work that does that every single day, if not a mission every single day, just pushing towards those goals of transforming lives. By then, I had several corporate law offers with way too much money than I deserved. And I turned them all down, much to the continued chagrin of my mom, and <laughs> decided to do this work full time. So I took the bar exam in September of 2007, moved down to LA and been leading Jinko full time ever since. Those are some rich stories. I'm really excited we get to dive in with you. Let's go back to your beginnings, your parents' story, which is a big part of your story. How was money handled in the home when you were growing up? 
I've talked to several, both African and Nigerian people of my generation. So first generation, parents are Nigerian and African. And quite frankly, money was not discussed at all. There was a sense of, we handle the money. We take care of you. We'll provide for you. We'll give you allowance, but don't ask us about money. Don't ask us about investments and budgeting and those kind of things, partly because that wasn't as emphasized when they were growing up. It's kind of a generational thing where, again, it was very, the parents, the adults handle the money. A lot of my generation, we had to learn on the fly. We had to learn about bank accounts and savings and 401ks and investments. To this day, I have conversations with my friends of this generation who are continually trying to educate our parents on these things. Because not only were they not sharing it with us, they weren't doing the proper investigation about proper investments and put money into bonds or to stocks or how much should I save of my accounts. We had no conversations about money. And so I had a lot of catching up to do once I got older and had to start figuring things out, not only for myself, but also in terms of the foundation and spending and fundraising. It was a very steep learning curve. Before we get to that, I'm curious about college. You said you were at Harvard with all these other students who are very ambitious. Tell us about how you were thinking about money in college when you were gravitating towards service. It was the opposite. Money was talked about all the time at Harvard. <laughs> what was that like for you? It was eye-opening for me. It was very much, well, this job pays this much and you have a bonus. If I go into consulting, this is the bonus. And if I do an executive position here, but then if I wait five years, I can do this. Very much those conversations, which were helpful conversations to have because people were thinking about their futures and how they're going to plot them out. Now, it could go too far in terms of I'm going to do consulting, I'll hate it, but I'll make a bunch of money. Or I'm going to not get into social impact or nonprofit because that's not going to help me get my condo in Miami. It was definitely very different. I had friends who were very much already in the stock market. And I remember one of my dear friends, who to this day is a dear friend and donor, who talked about penny stocks, wanted to get involved with that, wade into the water before you go swimming type of thing. And it's interesting looking back on it, I felt a lot of pressure to catch up. And so I was turning on CNBC and watching for hours. I bought books on the basics of investing. And I was really trying to figure out, gosh, I feel like I'm missing. It was like FOMO, fear of missing out on money and investing. I didn't want to end up behind my classmates realizing that whatever I decided to do, I wanted to be able to at least have the literacy about money and about investing that I felt like all of my peers had going into a school like that and coming out. Was anybody talking about savings? No, it was very much about investing, about how much money to be made. Everyone had some schemes and, oh, invest in this and put into that. And I think it's true, obviously, in some cases, but there's definitely the ethos of those stories. The big billionaires started investing out of college. And you hear about the titans of finance. There's always that line like, when they were at Harvard or Princeton or Stanford, they started investing or they started a company. They were selling computers out of their room. There's one current billionaire who set up a satellite outside of his dorm room so he could trade stocks faster. And that led him to this path. Now he's a billionaire. You heard those stories. You definitely didn't hear if you save, then you can eventually have money to pay for your kid's college or whatever. We're so young. And the idea was to make a bunch of money and have a lifestyle. It was more spending and investing for a lifestyle because eventually you figure, well, when I have family and kids years down the line, we'll figure that out later. But it was very much an excitement about finding the next opportunity. And then people would say, oh yeah, once I'm really rich, then I'll start giving to charity. I'll support things. But first things first, let's take care of the getting rich part first. Interesting. When did you learn about philanthropy? It was always important to us as a family. 
I went to Catholic schools and there was an ethos there. And so we would save up pennies and quarters and we'd give them to various missions. We would do walkathons, we would do bake sales, we would do fish fries. So we were constantly fundraising for various causes. And my parents were always certain to make sure we understood that we were so blessed to be in the state, but we had family back home who were suffering. For a lot of us, our charity literally began at home, home being Nigeria. And so our parents would send money and clothes back and family members would come out here and we would go there. Charity really began with supporting family and extended family in Nigeria. So it was always second nature to us. That was not something I had to learn on my own or outside the home. It was always, you will give back. You will be generous. It's just a matter of picking your cause or picking the means through which you're going to better effectuate your philanthropy and generosity. This is fascinating to me because your parents weren't talking to you about money while you were growing up, but they were talking to you about the importance of giving with money and with other items. You go to college, you learn all about money from your peers and your self-discovery. How are you formulating the next step of your life as you were graduating from Harvard and putting all these different messages together? I really, at that point in my life, was trying to meld the two. So coming out of college, I wasn't planning to go full-time in philanthropy. My plan was to make a bunch of money and then start a family foundation through which I would give, either have my parents run it. The plan was never to dive into it and lead it myself. Put a lot of pressure on myself. I had a job in corporate marketing between college and law school. And I realized, well, I'm not going to make any money in corporate marketing, but I get a side deal, whatever. So I was looking into building a self-storage business. I was looking into all sorts of different things. I was talking to my friends about what stocks should I invest in. I was just trying to find a way to get there. So it was always for me, oh, yes, I will be rich, but I'll be rich so I could give more. Other people are trying to be rich so they can have another yacht or whatever, but I wanted to be rich so I can give more. And so I had that mindset from college through working for three years in corporate public relations and then into law school. And there was really a law school where I had the shift to, I need to dive into this myself. I need to lead this myself. Because I originally thought I go to law school, work for a firm, make a lot of money, and then segue into something else that would help me make even more money. And then I would stop and then give it. I remember reading so many stories about all these executives at Microsoft or Yahoo or Google. And the story was always, they made millions and then left Google to start a nonprofit. That's great. But how brave is that when you're already worth $50 million? It's like, oh, now I'm going to stop and help with reading in the Amazon, which is really important, powerful work. But I just thought, that's a pretty big cushion when you can do that from your yacht or from your <laughs> big mansion in the Bay Area. For me, taking that leap after law school, where not only did I have no money, but I had huge debts and I didn't have any path to raising money. I mean, in law school, the last thing you learn is about fundraising and money. There are a lot of similarities between my growing up in an African family and law school, because law school teaches you very little about money and investing. It's about the law. It's about making a case. You deal with a lot of money, merger agreements, merging company A, which is 5 billion with company B, which is 10 billion. But even a simple course on investing and money management would have really been a great thing, but we didn't have that. And so I was really operating without a net once I made the leap to doing Jinko full-time. I had to figure out, how do I raise money What's my personal plan for money? How do I keep going? It was a pretty difficult time, to be honest, those first couple of years when I was leaving law school and doing Jinko full-time. You already introduced this idea. I want you to describe the conversation with your mom when you're telling her, I got all these great corporate offers, but I'm going to do something different. 
in Nigeria, it's a joke. Nigerian parents, the only options for their kids are doctor, lawyer, engineer, failure. <laughs> Those are the options you have. They very much want a doctor in the family. There were four of us kids, and so they had four chances. And my brother flirted with medicine for a while, but never made the commitment to pre-med and medical school. My sister is very early on said, we are not going to be doctors. I was actually pre-med at Harvard. I took all the classes, took organic chemistry, and was a day away from mailing my med school applications out. I took the MCAT. I was really on the path, but had no passion for it. From day one, had zero passion for it. I just kind of did it because that's what I was almost expected to do. And then just could not mail those applications, could not go through with it. The day I decided not to do it, one of the happiest days of my life, a weight was lifted. I never looked back. Telling my mom that I wasn't going to be a doctor, I can see her face, this mixture of confusion, anger, and disappointments. <laughs> when I told her I wasn't going to go to medical school, but then when I told her I was going to law school, she said, hey, that's on the list. She double checked. Yep doctor, lawyer, summer two. So that's fine. <laughs> He's not a failure. Exactly. So make a bunch of money as a lawyer. So I went through and went to Stanford, which is a great school. And I have such fond memories of Stanford, would not be doing this work without the encouragement and support I got from the Stanford community. And then had to tell my mom, oh yeah, about being a rich lawyer, I'm actually not going to do that either. And she's like, what is with you? But she's been so supportive. Her main concern, again, ties back to money. Her number one challenge was, how are you going to make money? How are you going to support yourself? How are you going to support a family one day? These are good questions, right? Yeah, very good questions. Again, I had no money and I had huge debts. My plan was just ask people for money, which to her and to that culture is very foreign because Nigeria does not have a culture of philanthropy. The U.S. is stunningly generous in terms of the money that people give to causes that have no effect on them. To her, like people who aren't Nigerian give you money and give you enough money so you can not only do work in Nigeria, but you can pay your rent and feed yourself. She did not think that was going to work out, even though she loved me and wanted it to work out and wanted me to follow my dream. And now 15 years later, she's starting to come around. I think I got another 15 years before she's fully on board. You'll win her over eventually. Yes. I'm being patient with that. <laughs> Afam, tell us the journey of starting Jinko. I was in law school thinking about the law firm offers that I had and realized that if I took a law firm job, I would not have time to do Jinko at all. It would wither and die. There was no one in the family to do it. My siblings weren't going to step up and do it. We couldn't afford to hire someone outside the family. I got up every morning, both inspired and terrified about the notion or idea of doing Jinko full time. To this day, I think living a life where you're both inspired and terrified by your life's work is a pretty good way to be. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to take a leap. And then I had to immediately start thinking about money. First of all, my own situation. One of the first things I did was go to the dean's office and say, hey, when I was deciding between Stanford and Harvard and Columbia and all sorts of great law schools, he said, if you come here, you can do anything. This is Stanford. We really believe in if you want to be a corporate lawyer and make a bunch of money, great. If you want to get into government service, great. If you want to do a nonprofit, great. And I remember telling him, you told me that before I even decided to sign up and I'm holding you guys to that. And we need help to do this. And Stanford has a very generous loan repayment program. And he said, well, I'm not sure you qualify because this is a nonprofit. But I said, hey, you told me I can come here and do this. And to his everlasting credit and the credit of the school, they said, yeah, you're right. And so Stanford paid off like 80% of my loans. 100,000 plus debt load was taken care of by the school. I'll forever be grateful to Stanford for that. And the donors who supported that work, that program, I'll never forget. I made the decision. I told my classmates and they said, well, we want to support you in this. And so we had a fundraiser at the Sheraton Hotel in Palo Alto. 
And all my classmates showed up and donated. Some of them got friends and other corporations and law firms to donate. And so all my friends are there supporting me at this fundraiser. And then one of my classmates pulled me inside and said, listen, none of us could really find Nigeria on a map, Nigeria, Algeria. We don't know, but we love you. We care about you. We're giving through you to effectuate this good because we believe in what you're doing. That's when I learned that people give to people. People give because they're asked by people they trust or they love or they want to support. That really inspired me. And then one of my really wealthy professors found out what I was doing and we had a meeting and he said, I think this is crazy, but I made my money giving to startups that I thought were crazy and worked out. So I give to founders, I give to people who have a passion and you're committing your life to this. And so I'm going to fund the first two years of your life. Go raise money, but I will give you money to pay for your groceries and your rent. And without that support, I would not have been able to do Jinko. And that just became asking other alums, both Stanford and Harvard alums, and trying to figure out what am I asking for? How do I ask? And beginning this relationship now, 15 years of money in the context of philanthropy. A lot of important money conversations. Absolutely. How did you get the courage to have them? It sounds like from what you're describing, once you started having them, the snowballing became so much easier and you were becoming more successful in learning. But those initial conversations? The most fundamental lesson that I've learned and have to give is not to be transactional, to begin with relationships. For my classmates, because they knew me as a friend and a classmate, before I did Jenko, before I started asking them for money, we had that basis of friendship. And so when I came to them and started asking them for money, it came as a friend. I'm not just all of a sudden coming to you with my hand out for money. It's someone who you know and trust. For me, it was just beginning to build relationships. And so if I walk into a wealthy attorney's office or a billionaire's office, we have a lot of celebrity supporters walk on a movie set with them. I begin with relationship. I begin with getting to know them. I begin with sharing the same story that I shared with you. And then having them get to know me, that to me is balancing that patience and persistence, not walking into someone's office expecting to come out with a check, just wanting to come out with them knowing me a little bit better than they did before I walked into that office and then get to know them again and again, and just begin to build those ties. And once that happened, I was surprised by how easy the money conversation began because you're doing it with a friend, not this awkward. I've read from several experts, someone should never be surprised when you ask them for money. It should never be like, oh, I thought we were just getting to know each other. And here you are asking for $20,000. Like you should never surprise someone. So for me, it was building that relationship and then giving them space. It's amazing how many times I walk into someone's office or have a meeting with them and just tell my story, talk about the work and then pause. And they make the leap to money to, I'll see what we can do, or let me see what my foundation can do, or my corporation can sponsor this event, or with our celebrities, we do a lot of go on set and visit this celebrity or premiere. And so you're not asking them directly for money. You're always trying to find ways to make someone comfortable and support. And for a lot of people, it is writing a check or sending a donation. But for a lot of people, it's, let me see if my corporation can sponsor this event, or yes, someone can come on set and donate money and I'm already there. It's just finding ways to make people comfortable with what you're doing and how they can help. And there is a bravery involved. But I always tell people, I'm not asking for me. I'm asking so that one more girl can have a scholarship who deserves it. A girl who's been abused, who's been orphaned, who's been driven from her home by terrorism can have a scholarship. And if I have to look her in the eye and say, sorry, asking for money is kind of awkward. You have to stay in this shelter. You have to stay in this community where you're not getting educated. I can't do that. And for women to deliver in a place of dignity that's safe, that their babies can be vaccinated and can have the care that they need, 
So I always keep that forefront in my mind when I have these conversations. Rejection is never easy. It happens all the time. But I realize there are people who aren't going to give to this cause. And I get to those people as soon as I can so I can get to those who do care about the cause. I really appreciate you underscoring the importance of these relationships. Nothing happens without building them and you're connecting the value to the money or the involvement. You mentioned that it comes with rejection, but I feel like you've even educated people on what you're doing and how you're doing it, why it's important. And I think there's such value to that. I want to go back to this professor who offered to fund you personally. Describe that feeling when he reached out and made this amazing offer. I had known that he was someone of some wealth when I took his class. At Stanford, classes are really small, and so you do get to know your professors. I got to know him, never made an ask, never really told him about this dream, just got to know him as a human being. And then at the end of the class, I said, hey, can I have a bit of time? I want to talk to you about my decision I've made in terms of my next step after law school. And I told him he has a real passion and heart for Africa. I remember him saying, well, how are you going to do this? I'm like, well, I need to raise money. I need to figure this out. I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to dedicate my life to this. Saying that and then giving that moment of pause. And I remember him just thinking and looking at me and saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then he made the offer to give us the money so I could really support myself and focus on fundraising. But I could not have done that. A, if I didn't have that four or five months of being in his class and getting to know him and not putting any pressures of money and donations, I didn't come at him. I didn't send him a cold email. So it was very much building the relationship. And to this day, he's a donor. 15 years later, he still supports us. And our conversations are 75% his life. How are you doing? How are his kids doing? How am I doing? Giving me advice. And then, oh, how are things going with Jinko? For him, it's very much not like send me an Excel spreadsheet or a budget. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to give you this and go keep doing the good work that you're doing because we built that trust and I've proven to him, I'm dedicated. I've been doing it for so long. He knows I'm not going anywhere. This is not some fly-by-night thing or some whim that I had. I think that's very key to a lot of our donors. They realize that my work is rooted in a personal story. I wasn't hired by Jinko. And if a bigger foundation comes with a flashier bonus or a bigger... 401k, I'm going to leave to Jenko and go to that. Like I'm rooted in this story. I'm rooted in this work. And that gives donors a trust. They can give their money knowing that, okay, you're going to be here this year, next year, the year after, 10 years down the line. I think that's also key that they realize that they can really invest in our work for the long term. And the work that we do, we help clients all the time set up trust, set up foundations, set up other entities. One of the most important aspects of setting up those entities is the name. Names are so powerful. If you create a lot of intention toward coming up with a name that reflects the purpose of what you're doing, it can change the course of what happens within that entity. Tell us, how did you come up with the name Jinko for the foundation? Growing up, all of our license plates were Jinko 1, Jinko 2. And it's because it's the first letter and the first name of everyone in the family. Godwin is my father and he's G. Abella is the E, she's my sister. I'm the A, Afam. N is Unche, who's my sister, the youngest of the four. And then Unma, N-M-A, which is my mom's Nigerian name. She goes by Josephine, but her Nigerian name is Unma. And then Chuku Gazie, which is the C. Everyone calls him Goes, but my brother is the C. And then O for the Onyema. We wanted to emphasize the family nature of this. We're doing it as a family. We're rallying around our father's dream as a family. 
and the idea that anyone who donates, anyone who comes on a medical mission to do operations, anyone who donates books, whether you're a celebrity, whether you're a Girl Scout, whether you're a billionaire, whether you're giving $10, you're a member of our family. And we truly do consider our Jinko community a family. I address most of my emails to our Jinko Foundation family and how much we cherish them. We wanted to make that real in the name. We want everything rooted in story. We didn't want to be the Saving Nigeria Foundation, which is great, but there's no story behind that. We wanted to have everything we do rooted in a story, rooted in a why. I love it. That's so great. It shows that you are really connecting. Tell us, Afam, what's the big dream? On the healthcare side, we have these 40-foot shipping containers that we convert into maternal centers, solar-powered, and they can be put in rural areas, urban slums, are able to do amazing work. Women are delivering healthy babies there, and the babies are getting vaccinated, women are getting the healthcare they need, and hundreds of women and children are benefiting from these. We have five clinics so far, and I want to go from five to 50. I want to go to 50 to 500 clinics. The goal is to expand the clinical network on that end. We are doing our medical missions, like that very first one that inspired me in 2005. We've been continuing on. We'll be doing both hip and knee replacements and also hernias, gallbladders, internal surgeries. So we alternate between those. And so continuing those and expanding, I love to do eye surgeries. I love to do various other surgeries, go from one mission a year to two missions a year. On the education side, through our David Ayelowo Leadership Scholarship for Girls, we provide scholarships, social support, healthcare to young female victims of terrorism. And we've gone from, in five years, three girls at one school to 40 girls at five schools throughout the country. We could give 500, 5,000, 50,000 scholarships and not even grasp the surface. There are almost 10 million girls out of school right now in Nigeria, which is the highest number in the world. There are more girls not in school in Nigeria than there are anywhere else in the world. And so we have our work cut out for us. We know we're not going to reach all 10 million, but we want to reach as many as we can and just empower them to live their best lives, to get them involved in helping solve the challenges of this world. I want girls working on climate change. I want girls working on the next medical breakthrough. I want girls working as physicists. I want girls to lead the country as government officials and politicians. To go from 40 girls to 400 to 4,000 is my goal. Growing our programs, empowering more people, which involves raising a lot more money and having a lot more discussions about money. And so I'm ready to do that. And I'm hoping that we can continue along that path. What is your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? It's interesting. As we speak, we're in the NBA finals between the Golden State Warriors and the Celtics. And one of our big donors is a huge basketball fan. He'll call me at random times during the day to discuss both basketball and our work. We'll have money conversations about Jinko while we're discussing how the finals are going. I'm sure as the finals have heated up, I'm going to get a call from him soon and have that discussion. Also, we have a big gala coming up. We have a Hollywood gala that we do every year. And I'm having a lot of money conversations about sponsoring that gala. Soon after this discussion, I'm going to send some emails out and try to set up some sponsorships with some of the entertainment companies that support us, some of the individuals, and ask people to increase their giving. So there'll be a lot of money conversations between now and the end of the year. I'm looking forward to all of them, to be honest. Even the ones that don't work out the way that I want them to, because there's always opportunity to learn. It's always an opportunity. Even those two people who say no will often say, well, I can't do this, but I'll talk to my cousin or my corporation, or I'll refer you to someone else. And so people want to be helpful in ways that they can be helpful. There'll be a lot of those conversations coming up. Thank you for sharing so much with us, talking money on Money Tales. 
this is something that you've gained a lot of comfort around. And I think you've figured it out. It is about one conversation at a time and really connecting with each person at a time and asking for permission to start the conversation. This is something we talk about. Thank you for that. And congratulations on the success of Jinko. And we wish you great continued growth. Well, thank you both so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. And I love having this conversation in a way that encourages those who are maybe a little scared of money or don't want to touch upon it, realize that it can be a positive conversation. It can do wonderful things in terms of people giving and opening their hearts as well as their wallets. So I love having these conversations. I love this one in particular. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, Share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.